town there's been. Who's there to write to anyway? got right now actually they're letting me keep the house the rich don't even go broke the same as the rest of us huh hi and welcome back to gotham tv podcast the unofficial podcast of the upcoming fox tv series gotham and the connected dc universe this is zero year episode nine this is our dark Knight rises review uh, i'm derek one of your hosts hello and i'm john your other host uh, so welcome rising. back. <laughs> your other host rising exactly um so welcome back we're on to our, uh, our the third in our series of chris nolan films the and our final review. installment and, yeah yeah the final installment of the trilogy uh so we'll be getting on to our review in a little while of the uh i suppose the seminal and final installment of uh of the movie series uh but to start with there's loads of dc connected universe news and some gotham news this week so uh yeah, i guess we'll kick off into our into our really busy yeah been a really busy couple of weeks uh, kick off into our news segment. Now for a City Watch news brief here on GCN. This week, the news in Gotham, or should I say the news about Gotham, has been that a number of the cast have been confirming on Twitter that they're returning to work, which is good news. Mm-hmm. And they're beginning the recording of the rest of the series. So a lot of that um, on-set images that we saw earlier in the year were all the pilot. It wasn't any further production. And now that they've been picked up for a full season one, and so they've gone back to New York, which is the stand-in for Gotham City, and they've uh, gone back to obviously start shooting for the remaining episodes of season one, which yeah. is great news. Yeah, absolutely. We we kind of heard rumors that they were going to start shooting in uh, around the fifteenth of July, which is uh, which is a couple of weeks' time. We're we're in. If you're listening to this a bit later, we're in uh, the week of the twentieth of June. So, uh, seem to have come back to work about three or four weeks beforehand. We saw uh, tweets from Donald Logue, Victoria Cartagena, Andrew Stewart Jones, and Robert Lord, Robin Lord Taylor all saying that they're uh, back in back in New York. Um, most of them have said they're specifically saying that they're back. And Cameron Beacondover as well. Uh, yeah. She said she was on a red eye from Vegas, was she? Uh, no, that was that was Robin Lord Taylor. Yeah. Uh, he and was on the red eye from Vegas. Just to say, Andrew Stewart Jones is obviously Crispus Allen, mm-hmm. um, the partner of Rene Montoya. So the uh-huh. the duo are back together. Yeah. Um, a la Gotham Central, so we're pretty excited by by that. Yeah, and one of the things we we believe this early early shooting will mean for us is that uh, hopefully coming up to the, uh, San Diego Comic Con, which happens at the end of July, this will give them an opportunity to record a couple of weeks worth of footage and hopefully put together a, a brand new trailer or at least some brand new footage for uh, for the the next season and for San Diego Comic Con for the lucky people that are going to that event. Yeah, so hopefully there will be a season trailer. Yeah, yeah, like we pretty much everything we've seen, all the all the images we've seen, all the footage that we've seen, and some of the trailers that we've seen. Pretty much all of them have been recuts of the the pilot episode, which we understand is supposed to be a the usual forty one forty two minutes of of footage. So we've seen a lot of it so far in the, in the various cuts that we've seen. Um, so hopefully this will give some some brand new insight into Gotham. Absolutely. And speaking of Victoria Cartagena, who's playing Rene Montoya. And she's also confirmed that she's doing a bit of swatting, mm-hmm. a bit of reading up on um, Gotham Central yeah. um, to prep her for the role of Gotham. And this is kind of coming on the back of 
sort of the previous stuff we'd brought up in, um, I think it was one of our very earliest episodes, episode one or two of of the podcast, um, that Ben McKenzie had been reading Gotham Central uh, to get him into the role of uh, being a member of the MCU of the GCPD mm-hmm. uh, and Jim Gordon. Absolutely. Um, so the MCU is the major crimes unit. Yeah, the um, major crimes unit and <laughs> the not GCPD. the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah, we, um, we've been told to say that. Just to, <laughs> uh, just to make it very clear, yeah. it is the major crimes unit. Mm-hmm. To be honest, I get mixed up myself. Yeah. I'm like thinking, ooh, MCU, ooh, Doctor Strange. And certainly at the moment, ooh, Doctor Strange, ooh, I, Doctor Strange. Mm, and then yeah. Gotham, 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 ooh, of Doctor course. Strange. Um, but also, so Ben McKenzie obviously has looked at Gotham Central. And yeah. then Bruno Heller. Um, he's also uh, a third member of the 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 TV series show that has also kind of said that Gotham Central is one of um, the source material or some insight at least into a Gotham where the Batman doesn't loom quite as large as he would do in other uh, graphic novel series or comic strips, even though he is present, obviously, in Gotham Central. Absolutely, and just before this series of, of uh, the Chris Nolan reviews, we did talk about the we had two podcasts, uh, episode four and episode five of uh, of, of Zero Year. Uh, we're both dedicated to Gotham Central, uh, and we'll be going back to Gotham Central very soon. Um, really excited and really looking forward to it. Some of the main characters in that in that uh, comic book series will be playing quite major roles in the TV series. So, uh, so we're hoping to take some quite good cues and hopefully some really good storylines from it. Um, I suppose in, in another piece of news connected to this, Bruno Heller has also discussed bringing in Mr. Freeze into the Gotham TV series. Uh, Freeze is quite a central character in at least the first uh, 18 issues. You see him quite a lot uh, appear, and um, and it's quite interesting to think that that he could be used in the Gotham TV series. He hasn't been announced yeah. yet. There's no there's no nobody cast in the role yet, but. In a sense, he opens Gotham Central in issue one and issue two. He's there, and then he appears throughout the remaining issues that we've reviewed so far, which is up to issue 18, where he's sort of in court, and there's this sort of background follow-through of that story with with Mr. Freeze, and that would be um, a really interesting fit for this idea um, of it being the early days of Gotham. We see where people's origins have come from specifically the villains Mm -hmm. and i think one of the things really that would be quite interesting to see with mr freeze is him and the love of his life Mm -hmm. um actually i can't actually remember her name now and there's yeah yeah it's it's mrs freeze i think she's (laughs) regularly known as (laughs) ice cube (laughs) no not ice cube Um, but that would be one of those interesting uh stories to really sort of dig into uh, and see what can be explored in, in, in that relationship because it, it becomes such a driving force of, of Mr. Freeze throughout then the when he is seen as this super villain, this heightened villain. Yeah. So that would be really good. And considering the only big screen version of, of Mr. Freeze so far has been uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger in the atrocious and abhorrent uh, Batman, <laughs> Batman and Robin. Um, which we unfortunately watched quite recently. Um, but expl- we need to explain why we watched it because, well, sorry, I need to explain why I thought it was a good idea that we watched it. Mm-hmm. Um, which, of course, I was sadly proven to be completely wrong, um, and 
think we ended up probably screaming at the TV, just going, why? <laughs> why have they why? done this? <laughs> but it was primarily because in reviewing Christopher Nolan's trilogy, it's so dense and deep and... Um, there is there is a seriousness seriousness that runs through it that we kind of wanted something just a bit lighter, mm-hmm. but instead we got something really stupid and quite <laughs> annoying. Yeah, um, I think I can pretty much categorically say we will not be doing a two and a half hour <laughs> review of that of that uh, that movie. But I suppose in another, like the uh, comics, the podcast would simply be a series of. Uh, hashtags, ats, yeah. uh, exclamation marks, and asterisks, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of expletives that would have to be deleted out, definitely. Um, one other, I suppose, one other piece, um, Mr. Freeze has been played before on uh, the Batman 66 TV show. I don't know whether you're aware of this. It was played by uh, Eli Wallach, the very famous Eli Wallach, who unfortunately passed away mm. um, yesterday. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he played uh, he played Mr. Freeze in the early uh, in the early 60s Batman, which I think is quite uh, quite interesting. Uh, he will be sorely missed. But I think one of the things here is that, you know, Gotham Central is a really interesting thing to take a look at at the moment. Um, certainly if you're looking forward to Gotham in the autumn. Um, certainly from the first 18 issues that w- we have read, I think overall we would certainly recommend it. There are two quite amazing art uh, one soft targets which which involves the Joker, but one I think that we would both agree is elevated above that, and that's Half a Life, um, which is with Rene Montoya. Um, it's a great um, little story arc with Harvey Dent, Two Face, uh, Rene Montoya, and her private and professional life. Mm-hmm. So that that story arc is in episode four. Half a Life is in episode four. And soft targets with the Joker is with is in episode five of the podcast. And obviously, all these uh, all the Gotham Central is available digitally. Um, you can also go and pick it up from from a good comic book store. I'm sure they're going to be doing really good reprints going up to the coming up to the show if the connections to the show are are, uh, are accurate, I suppose. So on to a bit more news. Uh, and this is kind of a this is a non news story that seems to have done the rounds. Uh, that apparently a claim that Fox, uh, a branded claim that Fox News had uh, reported that Gotham had been cancelled. Uh, that apparently the feedback from the pilot was poor um, and that the show was being cancelled. Uh, absolute um, uh, absolute rumor and uh, it's totally been debunked. Um, in fact, all of the feedback from the uh, from the screenings of the of the pilot um, have been hugely positive for yeah. everybody from critics to, I suppose, to buyers for networks to the to some of the fans that have been able to get to see it. It's all been really positive in the show um, so far. So, uh, to give a bit more detail behind this particular rumor, it came from a a site that's kind of a create your own headline. It gives you some templates that you can pop in uh, whatever you want to in it. Uh, somebody done that and sent it around the internet. Essentially, the site's called uh, Sunday Times Daily. Uh, which is STD, uh, because it's a viral. So we hope that you didn't get caught out by the STD. Exactly. So Essentially, because it's a viral transmission. It's the yeah. it's the whole joke there. Um, Hilarious. But basically, yeah. If for some reason you thought this was total fact and had been crying into your cereal, mm-hmm. into your pillows, because Gotham had been cancelled, that been whisked out of your grasp before you'd even seen one episode. It's all lies, and it just is coming from a one of these websites that essentially send, tries to get viral, and I suppose in this sense, negative messages spread exactly. through. 
Or, of course, if you were tuning in to hear us cry, we're not crying. This is a pretty good week for Gotham News, so, it's, so we're delighted. And then speaking of sort of pilot trailers um, and so on and things going viral, mm-hmm. there were two genuine uh, pilot trailers that were released, um, one by the Canadian broadcaster CTV, who will be broadcasting Gotham in Canada uh, this autumn. So this new trailer, there was not that much new footage from what was shown in the original extended trailer cut by uh, by Fox. Um, there were some additional new scenes. In particular, John Doman, who we thought may have been Commissioner Loeb, or we then corrected ourselves to say it was um, could have been Carmine Falcone, certainly came across as being a mobster or gangster in the vein of Carmine Falcone uh, quite strongly in this. And then the other thing that was dropped was the word penguin, yeah. the penguin, where one of Fish Mooney's or uh, Oswald Cobblepot's sort of henchmen said and called him the penguin. And you got the sense that he didn't want to be called that. Stop calling me that, I think he, he said. And um, that was an interesting revelation in a sense, maybe yeah. too much, um, but... Yeah, I think I think interesting it, to see. Yeah, as we say, not a huge amount of new footage in there. We're not going to do a trailer breakdown on it. There's you know a couple of small scenes, and honestly, I think it was cut quite badly uh, together to to do things like that. Uh, penguin, don't call me the penguin. Uh, I don't like your riddles. I don't, um, is she growing plants? Something <laughs> was in there for for poison ivy. You know, it was just too much. It was just really badly cut trailer. I think it gave a really poor vision of the show. Whereas the Fox trailer probably gave a much much more clear version of the show essentially so um wasn't particularly excited about that one one that i was excited about was the the fox trailer that they did for the villains which i thought was really interesting yes that was just very little conversation just very close up on a number of the different villains mm-hmm. one was oswald gobblepot one was the riddler one was fish mooney and so on and it, it intercut in between uh, these different villains as it panned out to reveal more and more of them, and then it moved into um, Harvey Bullock and Jim Gordon. Yeah, yeah, and I suppose the specific thing that came out from this is how did these people become the villains that they are? Mm-hmm. Because they're from Gotham, is the is the whole point of it. Yeah, yeah, really. I thought that was a really well cut scene. Really cut yeah, bit. Gotham is this breeding ground for psychopaths, criminals, nutcases. Exactly, basically. exactly. Um. I suppose our final piece of Gotham news is a good bit of news for for our Australian listeners. Uh, we have a couple, I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so broad, uh, the Australian broadcaster Nine Network has confirmed that they've bought the broadcast rights for Gotham. Um, so hopefully that means they're going to be broadcasting it in, in, uh, in Australia um, around the same time as, as the American uh, broadcast. I know that they do that with a lot of American shows. They broadcast very quickly after they broadcast in the US. Um, so. And essentially we're really now waiting on confirmation of the broadcaster in Europe and also then in Ireland and the UK. Yeah. And I think for Ireland and the UK, and it could be then for also Germany and Italy where they have Sky, but it looks as though Sky is probably one of the uh, contenders for for ha- having Gotham uh, broadcast through them uh, in the autumn. Yeah, absolutely. Sky has quite heavy connections with Fox in the US. The One of the head buyers we, we talked about a couple of weeks ago has been quoted as saying they love the show and it's, it looks really exciting. Over in Europe, over in Ireland and the UK anyway, they have uh, the rights to Arrow, which is another 
another uh, Warner Brothers series. They're they're pretty likely to try and buff up that superhero appeal. Arrow does really well for them in the UK. Uh, they're probably very likely to, to go for it, so yeah. we're kind of excited about that. It's likely they may also go with Flash as well, mm-hmm. given that they also have Arrow at the moment. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Okay, great to make it with the channel of superheroes, really. <laughs> they do have their superhero movie channel that comes on occasionally as well. So uh... it's a bit more Gotham news. Came out uh, pretty much as we were recording. Kind of behind-the-scenes stuff, um, but really interesting for for uh, for us who are looking forward to the series. Um, ben Edlund has joined uh, the background uh, team on Gotham. Um, he's kind of a pretty well-known writer in uh, in Hollywood TV circles, really. Um, he worked on Supernatural, a TV show that I'm still fanatical about, really. And he's heading into um, season ten, I think, this autumn. He's yeah, finished season nine. Yeah, he um, he was working on the show right, right the way through from season two to season eight, um, and had a bit of a change up. Um, but yeah, he's been been involved in many many series stuff like um, Angel, uh, which just just Whedon's show Angel. Um, which we already talked about. Um, he's also done two episodes of Firefly for Joss Whedon, so he's a pretty well known, uh, well known guy in kind of geek and nerd nerd circles. So uh, yeah, so it's, yeah. it can only be a good addition to to the team that are going to be bringing Gotham to us. Yeah. And then one other uh, sort of behind camera person, that TJ Scott, um, is going to be directing episodes four and six of Gotham in yeah. its first season. So. He's been known for um, so Hem- Hemlock Grove, uh, which is on Netflix, mm-hmm. but also then the BBC America Orphan Black, and then also Spartacus. And so you have that um, connection there with um, uh, Danny Cannon, Bruno Heller, who have also done um, and been involved with Spartacus there. So they're obviously um, getting people who they've worked with before, um, who they know, they know how to operate with, to get them on board um, to direct and work on Gotham Season 1. Yeah, absolutely. I think this all, all kind of gives a bit of a flavour of how the show is going to go. You know, I think when we talked first off about Bruno Heller and, and uh, Danny Cannon taking on the show, we weren't sure whether they were just going to be showrunners, whether they were going to write every episode. Pretty unlikely, obviously, but um, whether they were going to write or direct every episode, that kind of stuff. So the more of these these kind of releases of, of interesting people in, in, in the TV world and Hollywood coming on board, the more it, it tells us how the show is going to shape up, you know? Yeah, the, the more information that kind of gradually comes out and, and gets published or comes through the social media like Twitter and Facebook, then the more we get this idea of quite how the show's going to go, um, the flavour of it more maybe in the tone from, from their previous work. So it's, this is some really uh, interesting news from a, a behind-the-scenes, um, behind-the-camera perspective, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and really interesting to see Van Edlund's take on, on this show. You know, he, he wrote six seasons of Supernatural. If you don't know it, it's basically two... Two brothers who are who are buddies who are teaming up to fight to fight the bad guys all the time. Quite similar to the two buddies, buddy cops in this case. They'll be teaming up to uh, to fight the bad guys across the season. So he has some uh, some uh, some knowledge of that over his uh, over his tenure. And with T.J. Scott, uh, who worked on Spartacus, then we can expect an awful lot of abs, blood, <laughs> and. Uh, highly sexually charged aspects um, yeah. to Gotham. Also. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if it's on the CW, you might expect that. <laughs> right. Okay. That's uh, that's the end of the Gotham news. I think we have some other uh, some other news. Yeah. So then, in non-Gotham uh, and DC movie news, we got an established former Deadline.com founder. This is Nikki Fink. 
and, and this was making the rounds. So um, she was uh, quoted there on IGN with their reporting of this and a number of other different news outlets yeah, as well. Yeah, it became, became huge news. It went to everywhere yeah. from Empire to, to Kevin Kevin Smith and his podcast. Everybody's talking about these news. She essentially released a schedule of uh, the up-and-coming DC movie slate and projected timelines uh, for when they would appear. Mm-hmm. And the reason why this has been given uh, the attention that it has been is because you know she's a reliable source um, amongst um, this type of news Absolutely. and obviously has a strong reputation and so as it stands at the moment through from 2016 through to 2018 there were seven movies that um, she was indicating would be uh, was slated um for production, for filming, and for release um, within that timeline. Yeah, do you want to go through the list, John? Yeah, so basically, um, the first up, which is of no surprise, would be uh, the May 2016 Batman vs. Superman. Then the second, which was a bit of a surprise, I think, to everyone, was um, a July 2016 release of a Shazam uh, movie, DC Mm -hmm. movie. Then number three was a Christmas release in 2016 for DC or Vertigo off-print of The Sandman, which Mm -hmm. Joseph Gordon-Levitt obviously has been uh, linked with. Yeah, this is Neil Gaiman's Sandman, probably my my favourite comic book series of all time, to be honest. (laughs) Well, yeah, no, I mean, it has hugely influential um, comic series and so well-written artwork, brilliant, um, such a good offshoot um, an exploration of a character mm-hmm. um, so that certainly will be one that I think we're both very interested to see uh, come out. Then the fourth one was a May 2017 release and this was again something that has been making the, the news recently and that's the Justice League movie uh, we then go on to July 2017 and a standalone Wonder Woman film Christmas 2017 comes with a Flash and Green Lantern team-up. And then Film 7, by May 2018, it would be a Man of Steel 2. So a Superman 2 film coming out. Now, I mean, looking at those for me, in terms of, you know, what would I think of that lineup? Firstly, I go, where the hell did Shazam come from? Hmm. As far as I'm concerned, it's like, what are your priorities here? Um, I'm not entirely sure a Shazam movie should be one of them, not to be slated in that early. Maybe if you want to do it, introduce him into Batman vs. Superman, introduce him in Justice League, and see what happens. I don't know. Um, Obviously, there are a lot of people who are fans of Shazam and, and that, so maybe that's fine, but I think for... People who aren't, I think that comes as a bit of a surprise. Yeah, I think overall, as, as the lineup itself, themselves and the release dates associated with them come as a bit of a surprise. It looks almost like a, well, what the, what's the phrase, back of a fag packet kind of thing. It's like, <laughs> uh, here's some dates. Um, we want one in May, one in July, and one in, one in Christmas each year. So what do we want? All right, these are the ones we know about. Batman vs. Superman, Sandman, Justice League. These are the ones we kind of want to have. Shazam. Um, Wonder Woman, Flash is probably on TV, bang that on there. Uh, but we kind of have a Flash film on his own because it's have a TV show. Let's bring in Green Lantern again there so we don't lose the, lose Green Lantern's audience kind of thing. 
it doesn't seem hugely realistic to me. One of the things I've mentioned, a couple of people were, were interested to hear our thoughts on this, and one of the things I've mentioned was I'm waiting for confirmation on it because I don't really want to talk about it in too much detail because I'm not sure if this is really accurate. Um, things like a Shazam movie happening in two years' time without any without any talk about it at all, uh, without any real build-up to a Shazam movie, it's a, a movie that is a kind of a, it's a wish-fulfillment movie, I'd say, for kids. You know, you've got a 12-year-old who just says a word and becomes a, a superhero, an adult superhero, you know, hangs around with Superman, hangs around with the Justice League. Yeah, really interesting. Could could work really well as a, as a big fantasy movie for them, but I'm not sure how how quickly, how more, how much more important that is to do than Wonder Woman, for example. That, no, exactly. I, I think looking at that, to me, the Batman vs. Superman, obviously, is a, a known quantity. The Sandman, I think, as a offshoot, you know, it's coming from the Vertigo print, and I think that's realistic. It has been discussed. We've, we've heard stories, information about that, in particular, the Joseph Gordon-Levitt connection. Um, Justice League has already been mooted as well. That makes sense. And for me, after that, I would say the two that make sense there are Wonder Woman. I'd see that a lot of people are crying out that um, a that Wonder Woman and, in fact, a, a major female standalone comic role is given it its due and mm-hmm. given its early. And I think Wonder Woman certainly would um, fit that criteria. And then I see Man of Steel too. Um, that of you know, why go to the trouble of releasing Man of Steel, setting up that that world, those connections, only then to just simply play it out in a Batman versus Superman. It's got enough time in between that and Man of Steel one and the Batman versus Superman where it's possible. And I think my only other final point on this that we have to remember is that this is coming from Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers are a big studio who, and I would be really interested to know how many films they can actually push out in a year. Marvel, as a single production unit and, and film studio, at the moment can do two. Yeah, I mean, in terms of Winter Soldier and with Guardians of the Galaxy. And actually, within 12 months, they will probably have released three. Pretty much, yeah, you know, yeah. give or take a month, they'll have they'll have released three within almost a year. So it's not beyond the realm of possibility that you can have three superhero films, comic book films within one year. We also have to remember it is Warner Brothers. They must certainly have the capacity. They certainly have the logistics and know how to produce uh, and churn out uh, a lot of movies each year. My concern would be that some of these do, as you say, look like wish lists, um, and you have to be concerned possibly uh, about this idea of quality. I mean, it was mooted with the idea of the Justice League, that this was being suddenly rushed through to say that we need an Avengers-type thing, and there was concerns about whether it's going to get rushed, whether there's going to be due consideration. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the points I'd just like to make... Uh... The idea of having Man of Steel 2 as a second sequel to Man of Steel, it just doesn't strike as true to me at all. Um, maybe Man of Steel 3, but Batman vs. Superman is the sequel to Man of Steel. It's definitely not the sequel to the to the Christopher Nolan Batman franchise. Um, they'll, be reintro- they'll be introducing a brand new Batman um, in, the form of, in the form of Ben Affleck, as we know, um, but it's the same Superman. Uh, they're going to be dealing with the cleanup of Metropolis, essentially. 
Um, they're going to be dealing with the fallout of Man of Steel. So that is Man of Steel 2, just by any other name. So why would you have Man of Steel 2 happening in, in two years' time? It just doesn't sound realistic to me. We'll we'll keep you up to date with any and any new developments on it, obviously, as we go, and any more news that's on it as we go. But, um, but I think for the moment... I'm taking it with a pinch of salt. Apparently, Kevin Smith has yeah. confirmed that this is that this is what he thinks is the slate that's coming up. But you know, what, whatever may happen to to superheroes, superhero movies in the future, this sounds like a bridge too far. It sounds like someone's basic idea of what they'd like to see happen. I think until it's confirmed by either DC, Warner Brothers, or both, it's still very much, um, I think, as you say, uh, a wish list. Still. Yeah. Not convinced that Batman vs Superman is Man of Steel too. It is. It's the sequel to the to Man of Steel. <laughs> um, anyway, but another another wish list discussion. Um, Daniel Radcliffe was talking this week. He had a uh, had a, a, an interview with uh, with BuzzFeed.com, um, which just thought was a bit of fun. Uh, this is essentially where they just posed a couple of really quick rapid fire question questions to him, and he answered this answered off the top of his head. So the interview went essentially, "Would you ever start another franchise?" He said, "Yeah." They said, "Which one?" He said, Batman, if they reboot that again, I'll do that. It is happening, isn't it? Ben Affleck is doing it. I could be Robin. I'd be perfect in that role. So this is taken up across the internet. Harry Potter wants to be wants to be Robin. Um, do you know what? I'm, I'm really interested. I'd love to see what he does. I think he's a, a really interesting actor. You know? It'd be really good to see him get re-immersed back into you know, a large-scale franchise after Harry Potter because, obviously, since Harry Potter, he's been supporting smaller cinema um, doing more niche projects and has been working quite a lot on stage as well it would be really nice to see him come back again I think this very much is just maybe a wish list something yeah. that we he wants to do maybe maybe it's a prompted question um, maybe he will ultimately end up um, starring in I don't know uh, the Batman standalone film that's been uh, or is being expected in 2019 that will star Ben Affleck. Maybe Robin will be uh, in that in some form or another. Mm-hmm. That would be really interesting, and maybe it would be Daniel Radcliffe. Um, but again, that maybe is just going a bit too far into the future at yeah. this moment yeah, as to whether <laughs> there's anything known about that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we're just going into the realms of just wild speculation and that's all it is really that's the fun part about doing a podcast you can wildly speculate as much as you want to it's great fun um so yeah so i guess that's that's most of the news for um for for the dc cinematic universe there's a bit of news on the other uh, dc properties coming up on tv we've mentioned uh, we mentioned arrow and flash already um just tonight they they confirmed their premieres for their uh, for arrows season three and for yeah. flash season one um, the Flash confirmed that uh, that it will air its first episode on the seventh of October mm-hmm. uh, at eight pm. Uh, following night, Arrow will air its season three premiere. That's October eighth in the US um, at eight pm again. Mm-hmm. Um, so apparently, the only the only thing they're going to do is the previous week to that. So the first of October, they're going to air the two Arrow episodes that had Barry Allen, who becomes the Flash. They're going to air those. Back to back the previous week as their lead in to, to Flash, in case you forgot who he was, essentially. That's really good. I mean, I'm really interested to see how CW uh, play this because they're obviously integrating Arrow and Flash in a really good way. Um, I mean, as to the quality of that, obviously, we, we'll need to see that, but it's really great that they're doing that. It's mm-hmm. exciting. It, it really allows for so much anticipation. And 
certainly that they were also suggesting that aspects of the Gotham universe were also scheduled or possible for these um for the arrow uh, and I think Flash maybe hmm. I think it was Harley Quinn was mooted that she never got put in, but that there were yeah, they some... Yeah, they showed the back of her head in an episode yeah. of Arrow. I mean, even just yeah. little things like that, it just gets you looking at some of the background details, and I find that really exciting to, to see what they will do there. So I'm looking forward to how CW play these these two, um, essentially, TV franchises that they now own yeah. uh, and are broadcasting. Yeah, it's not um, since not since Buffy and Angel that we've had those kind of this kind of property on the air at the exactly. same time. Supernatural tried to do it this year with a spin-off show that never materialized. Um, so fair dues to. Yeah. Fair dues and to then do. the other aspect is with the Constantine TV show. There was a second trailer for Constantine, which was done by Global, and in that there was a revelation and a, a tease of Doctor Fate, and it was the helmet of Naboo, and this is a really interesting. Little snippet that we got, and um, certainly for me, I quite like Doctor Fate in the same way that I really like Doctor Strange. I prefer Doctor Strange, but nonetheless, mm-hmm. I always got me wondering about DC's version of, of Doctor Strange, which is Doctor Fate. So I was really interested to see this in Constantine because it's adding in a character from the wider DC universe. Um, with the occult themes and the supernatural and the mystic into Constantine. So it's integrating Constantine much more into the wider DC universe rather than it feeling as though it's some kind of offshoot. Yeah. Uh, and this is really, this this is good, I think. I mean, you never know. It could just be a plot point. It could just be they find the helmet of Naboo and that's it. Maybe there is no um, reoccurring character called Dr. Doctor Fate in the Constantine TV show. Yeah, but Maybe... it's usually it's usually encouraging. It's not like it's not like we have a situation here, like the Spider Man movies or the X Men movies, where they only have a certain limited spectrum of characters that they can use because Marvel owned the rest of them, and Marvel had the situation where they can only use a limited spectrum of their characters because some of them are owned by different companies. Warner Brothers own all these. They're part of DC Comics is part of Warner Brothers, so they can do whatever they want to. And I think this is just a reflection of what they can do. Uh, just having that little tiny tease in the Constantine trailer gave you that feeling that, that it's part of the wider DC universe and, and, and may use elements of it uh, to tell the story. And as you say, that it doesn't stand alone, essentially. Exactly, exactly. That's all the news for this week. Yeah. Tons. Loads. Yeah, see? So not a, not a quiet week goes by in our, in our, uh, in our little corner of the DC universe. Uh, loving it. So I guess we're moving on to our review of, of uh, The Dark Knight Rises. Let the games begin. Trade everything you stood for. That's the point. Far out there, when the structures fail you, when the robots aren't weapons anymore, they're shackles, letting the bad guy get ahead. One day, you may face such a moment of crisis, and in that moment, I hope you have a friend like I did. 
to plunge their hands into the filth so that you can keep yours clean. Your hands look plenty filthy to me, Commissioner. Okay, welcome to the review of The Dark Knight Rises. Starring Christian Bale, Tom Hardy, and Anne Hathaway, The Dark Knight Rises is the third movie installment in Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy. The events of The Dark Knight and the death of Harvey Dent are hanging heavy over Jim Gordon and Batman, and indeed the city of Gotham. The Batman is forced from his isolation and Bruce Wayne from his confinement to face a menacing terrorist threat, Bane, who is intent on destroying the city of Gotham and its inhabitants. This destruction extends to the Batman, both physically and mentally. However, an unexpected feline ally in the shape of the diamond thief Catwoman, a young cop, John Blake, and the people of Gotham join together with the Batman to combat Bane and the familiar yet background sinister organisation bent on revenge for Batman's previous destruction of their organisation. That's a lovely, lovely voice. And from here on in, there will be spoilers. Um, this is there probably... will be spoilers. <laughs> exactly. Uh, this is probably the most complex, I think, of the of the three films. Um, to me, lots of twists and turns, lots of really unexpected moments in it. So if you haven't seen it, go watch it. Um, there's no doubt about that. Um, yeah, it's very dense as well. I mean, yeah. there is an awful lot that it's trying to capture and cram into its what, two and a half, almost three hours here. of of running time. Yeah. It's a, a very complex film with many different strands. Again, Christopher Nolan is introducing a whole host of new characters and um, interweaving them into the story mm-hmm. and also with the existing cast members and characters that were already there. There's a lot of different threads that this film has Absolutely. and that is very common with his previous two films. Yeah, absolutely. And I think coming into this one, I know at the time there was a quite, there was a huge question over whether Nolan was going to come back and do a third film at all. Um, and it really feels like he's throwing a lot in to say, this is my final one. Um, I'm, I'm doing everything that, I'm, that I can do within the city. Yeah, it was, certainly wasn't planned. I mean, with Christopher Nolan writing, directing the third film, he never kind of intended to do that. I think certainly there's this idea that he tried to bring closure to his first two films in and at the end of The Dark Knight with the death of Harvey Dent. But he also, in a sense, left it open for other um, creative people, directors, to explore what it would be like if uh, Batman was on the run, mm-hmm. which is actually something that we don't see in this film. Yeah. Uh, we have an eight-year sort of gap from the events of The Dark Knight through to uh, the start of this film. Yeah, it definitely took me took me by surprise when I went in and saw this film first that it was uh, that it was an eight year jump and that Batman hasn't has been out of the suit essentially for those eight years. Uh, you know, yeah. Uh, I think that's one of the kind of overall comments that people make about the three films is that essentially Batman is wearing the costume for maybe about seven or eight hours um, over the course of the full the full history of Batman because there's not a huge amount of story to take take place in between those films. Yeah, uh, where he's in the suit, so it's quite an interesting idea. Yeah, and I mean. Ultimately, I think Nolan is pretty successful in tying it together as three films, even though that wasn't necessarily the intention or even the plan, whether it was of Christopher Nolan or indeed of Warner Brothers, Mm -hmm. um, to bring it all into a fairly relatively neat package. I do think that sometimes in this film, I mean, all the films are fairly dense with 
dialogue, with exposition, mm-hmm. with action, and just the, the story. But I think sometimes this, amongst others, particularly later on in the film, I do sometimes feel that certain things are shoehorned in. I think that some things have to be explained in a way that maybe if they had known what they were going to do in this film, they may have changed it up. For example, I think we were discussing uh, the letter of Rachel Dawes, that maybe if Alfred could have shown him that letter, it would have been different and you would have kept maybe Alfred in the show. Yeah, yeah, you absolutely feel that the writers in the writer's room for this film, all three of them are going, why did we burn the letter last time? It would make so much more sense if Alfred took it out of his pocket rather than trying to explain to him that he burnt it to protect him. And yeah, while it is a hugely touching scene, I'm sure we'll talk about it later on, uh, it's a hugely touching scene between the two actors. Um, It is a moment where you're kind of going, but would they really react like that to to a comment made by each other that they give up on each other that that moment? Yeah, and it's a a difficult scene, but but, yeah, it's a difficult scene. And I think sometimes maybe there are just a few too many strands trying to be done here. um, Mm -hmm. And that might be a result of the fact that this wasn't necessarily on Nolan's uh, cards or on his schedule yeah. certainly it just come off inception and mm-hmm. um, there was this talk of doing the um aviator type film the one that um i can't remember what it was called now the aviator yeah it was it was the it aviator. Was the aviator. Okay, good, good yeah. catch yeah, well <laughs> um, yeah. that one with the flying with machine leonardo DiCaprio, yeah. yeah yeah so in a sense and it makes a good little slag of that you know there's a, there's a great moment early on in the film where they um, where they talk about Bruce Wayne being holed up in, in Wayne Mansion having long fingernails long hair which is exactly what happened in the aviator at the end of the film spoilers for that 9 hour film uh, which isn't well, exactly. which isn't great but <laughs> but it's a nice little slag that that's in there from uh, from Nolan cuz he didn't get to direct his, his aviator movie so we come on to the opening scene again a huge bond esque type action sequence Shot in IMAX, mm-hmm. was it ten minutes or something like that? Yeah, it's about about seven minutes. Um, again, the it was fo- <laughs> the fo- about seven minutes. Yeah, I'm quite I'm quite exact. I'm a bit of a numbers guy. Um, Twelve minutes? No, 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 no. About seven. <laughs> seven point five, possibly. <laughs> um, but it was again. It was uh, this was shown a couple of months before the release of uh, of Dark Knight Rises. Um, shown in the cinemas ahead of um. The Mission Impossible uh, Ghost Protocol, which is the last, I think, Mission Impossible movie so far. Um, hugely scored really well at the box office. And uh, a lot of people feel it was purely to do with this six-minute opening or seven-minute opening being ahead of the, f- ahead of the film. Uh, and IMAX, that that's why so many people went out to watch it. There's a huge amount of excitement for it. Uh, what's the scene itself, though? The scene itself is kind of the introduction well, to... Well, as I say, it's very Bond. Mm-hmm. It reminds me incredibly of The Living Daylights, I think, where there is, again... And I remember seeing the sort of extras of that where the stuntman is actually held on to a plane of a similar size to what is flying. I think it's over the Scottish landscape. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's being filmed actually over Scotland um, in this opening. And it reminded me so much of Living Daylights in that sense, mm-hmm. uh, where you've got actual action stunt sequences being performed on a flying plane, which is awesome in itself. Yes, there is some heavy CGI used in this as as this scene as well. Mm-hmm. But it's really Bond. That's really Nolan again saying to uh, Cubby Broccoli's family, uh, "Will you not give me a chance to <laughs> to film a Bond film?" Absolutely. Um, 
whatever about all the other people that have done it where you're not like start to give me a chance mm. i might earn you a billion at the box office um but we have a fantastic scene where essentially the airplane is hijacked in midair um from bane's cohorts that have come on board um to essentially rescue bane who has purposefully got himself caught it's all part of his plan but also to kidnap a guy called Dr. Pavel, who is a nuclear physicist. But the main thing here is that we get, in terms of characters, we get introduced to Bane. The Caribbean pumped-up psychopath, who obviously in the comics is well-known for having broken Batman's back. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think in the movies before, he's again had appeared in the, in Batman and and Robin as in a terrible, terrible part. Um, with I think it's in Poison it's, Ivy's uh, research uh, lab. facility and yeah, lab. Yeah. yeah, I think his famous line is "monkey work." Um, so, <laughs> so luckily, despite people's comments about about the accent of uh, of um, of Bane in this film, luckily he has a lot more to say and he's quite a lot more of an intelligent character under Tom Hardy than uh, than he was in that in that movie. He's anyway. a very intelligent character, very calculating. I love the look of Bane in this. It's just, I mean, in essence, Hardy, what well, he put on however many kilos or pounds. Mm-hmm. To become Bane or ounces <laughs> or grams, I mean, the numbers guy <laughs> strikes again. Um, you know, to become that, and that physicality is really shown. I mean, he just postures all the way through, and sort of is that physical presence on the on the film. Absolutely, and not only that, the voice is something. I I, th- I think. I don't think I've ever met anybody who's seen this film who hasn't attempted to try that voice. I'm not going to do it. Um, but I'm not going to do it either. <laughs> I don't think I've met anybody that hasn't attempted to do the voice at least once. And to me, I've said this many occasions to many of my friends. They're sick of hearing me say it. But Let the games begin. Ah, sorry, I couldn't resist. I really <laughs> couldn't resist. <laughs> uh, but I've said this on many occasions. This is... I would say this generation's version of Darth Vader. When we were kids, everybody tried to do the breathing and the Darth Vader voice in Star Wars. Everybody even even the Spaceballs one, where it's like, <laughs> <laughs> "Get me out of this thing! I can't breathe in this." Yeah, exactly. But uh, but that's it. but that's that's Bane in this film. That's his voice. Everybody tries to do it. It's such a it's such a calculated uh, speech pattern, and it it belies the fact that he had that he has to wear this mask to to survive. If he's not wearing the mask, he will die. It is revealed throughout the film, just like Darth Vader. Very, very interesting idea. You know, very, very interesting character. But um, I love the voice. I love Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And, and you'll ag- be hearing many, many clips of it. And again, another aspect to Bane, which Tom Hardy has to take a huge amount of credit for. You know, he's got the physicality. He put on the muscle. He put on the weight. Um, the, the voice rhythm, and then obviously... The, the post-production kind of sound or tone of it, brilliant. But he mm-hmm. got the rhythm of it and the nuance or, and that pronunciation that you, people try and, and do. Mm-hmm. And the other thing well, then... Well, you try and do. Well, I try and do, yeah, <laughs> and fail. And then I think the third thing, which is really um, important, and it contrasts to the, that physicality, is just for the whole film you can't see his mouth Mm -hmm. his facial expressions are essentially incredibly restricted and limited throughout this whole film but his eyes tell you so much 
Tom Hardy here is having to act with his eyes, with the shake of his head, with his gesticulation, with his arms and with his hands. It's an amazing performance. I mean, one of the things that really catches my eye all the time is... Um, sorry, I couldn't, couldn't say it any other way. Every time he sees Miranda Tate in the film, and then obviously later on when it's Talia, the eyes that he looks at her with just have this expression of sadness of sort of that love that he cannot express and he's not able to provide to her but it's almost like this admiration uh, and heartfelt sort of love for her yeah and the eyes really give it away before you realize she's talia raz al ghul's daughter Mm -hmm. and it's really amazing and it's just something i noticed but his eyes are really good as to the expressions um that they themselves provide and and the emotions that they convey yeah yeah i think he does a a fantastic performance in the part really 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 love him and i think we spoke about in the last in the last two podcasts we spoke about the movies starting with um, with a character hiding in the shadows, the essentially the, the bad guy hiding in the shadows. Um, in this case, it's kind of a little mixed. It's a little mixed, but again, Miranda Tate hides out as, as Talia al Ghul the whole way through the film. There's a pre-existing uh, relationship between her and Wayne Enterprises where they, they got, in, got in into a, a deal about four or five years before the film takes place. She plays the part of Miranda Tate in that business dealing and has led the life of a of a high high level Gothamite for years. An investor. Um she's invested in energy technology, um, this cold fusion reaction mm-hmm. that um, Bruce Wayne and Wayne Enterprises has sunk an awful lot of money into essentially, and yeah. essentially making Wayne Enterprises practically unprofitable. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Pretty pretty much if they don't work with it a bankrupt but Miranda has not has gotten her claws in so deep with them and has, has convinced them of her I suppose of her quality as a as a person that they trust her so much that they essentially hand over the reins to Wayne Enterprises so more than any other character in the previous two films that were hidden in plain sight this is absolutely the bad guy hidden in plain sight right up until the big reveal um, that she is the daughter of, of Rast yeah and we get to see her as well then sort of just after the opening scene um, at a it's a memorial function at um, Wayne Manor, and we get introduced to uh, Miranda Tate as this investor. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the other aspects that we begin to see here as well is the past catching up with people, because mm-hmm. this is eight years in the future, and we see the line, the pact that occurred between Jim Gordon and Bruce Wayne Batman at the end of The Dark Knight, and it's beginning to eat away at Jim Gordon. He's there thinking about exposing the truth. You have this idea of the Dent Act, and it's locked up huge amounts of criminals from the streets. It's really been successful, and it's all built on this this foundation of sand, which is that Harvey Dent was killed by the Batman. Mm -hmm. Um, And what we find is that this, this lie... Because, in fact, Harvey Dent tried to kill Jim Gordon's son. And Jim Gordon has been promoting the guy that kidnapped his family, tried to kill him and his family, and it's becoming uh, far too much. And you see a shadowy figure. It's Bruce Wayne on the top of uh, Wayne Manor. Mm -hmm. Again, it's resulted in 
the loss of Batman from Gotham, it appears, yeah. uh, for the last eight years, maybe less, because of this pact that they had and the lie that they've um, propagated over that time. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a really, really interesting, really interesting starting point, I suppose, for this film is, uh, you know, how how much it's eating away at, at Jim. Um, and it's also, I think, there's not only that past catching up with with those two, which plays out later on in the film, you know, certainly Jim Gordon's reputation, I think, gets a real bad knock when it, it comes out uh, that Harvey Dent was ultimately this psychopath um, and that his reputation has been squashed. But also, this film is about the past catching up from even earlier for Bruce Wayne and Batman for what he did to the League of Shadows yeah, in Batman Begins. Absolutely. So again, another great way that the that the movies all tied together. Um, you know, it's, it's it's for a for a set of a set of three films that were probably not ever intended to be connected. Um, I think we said in our first podcast that Chris Nolan was given the job of doing a prequel to to the to the uh, amazing 1989 Batman, which is 25 years old today. Um, he was given the task to set up a, a prequel that could lead into that. And then it was so successful, he made his sequel. And that was even more successful than anybody could possibly imagine. So he was given the job of doing a third sequel to... Uh, I presume he must have been movies. begged. I reckon Warner Brothers Absolutely. must have essentially been on their knees, like hands praying, yeah. saying, will you please just we, do a third one? And we've never had a movie series as successful as this. And now he's shepherding the, the Man of Steel series. So he's he's obviously still well-loved within the... Well, within... yeah, well, they say that, but isn't <clears> it more he was there on... In a on a production role, producer role. He's executive producer for yeah. the Man of Steel series, definitely. Yeah. Don't know what that means. Whether it's just a paycheck that goes into his bank every month and yeah, makes maybe. him really happy. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I think Warner Brothers still wanted to keep the contact with him. Definitely. So back to the party, we'll get the introduction to another one of the the characters hiding in plain yeah, sight. So here's uh, our third new character mm-hmm. within almost the, within the first thirty minutes, forty five minutes of the film, Actually, yeah. and we get to. Introduced to a, a rather sassy maid who's really keen on taking up Bruce Wayne's dinner mm-hmm. uh, and going through sort of the the back staircase up to his room to to leave his meal. Hi, um, and that's S- Selena Kyle. Yeah, yeah, I love Anne Hathaway in this film, and I was so. I don't know. I think I was um, against. I suppose it's a bit too heavy a word against her playing the part, but the girl from the Princess Diaries. Oh God, would I be interested in seeing her in a Batman film? But from the first that first moment when she's talking to Bruce in his room, and she does that kind of shy moment where it's like, "Oh, really sorry that I'm that I was here," and then flips on a dime and turns on the Catwoman persona almost when she's been caught out. From that moment, yeah. for the rest of the film, every time she's on the screen, she lights it up. She's fantastic from her. She, she's from brilliant. Her, yeah. the, the, again, the Hans Zimmer score, where it, it feels just like someone tiptoeing around. The way he captures that every time she's on screen, that little theme of hers is amazing. Yeah. Just the the flippant remarks back to Batman where she's like, I'm not too sure I like this no guns policy type thing. Absolutely. Um, her suit, I mean, obviously, <laughs> yeah. 
there are certain aspects of the suit that would attract uh, people's attention more than others. But I mean, for me, it is definitely the goggles that flip back. <laughs> you thought I was going to say something else. I bet you did. I bet you did. But it is the goggles she has that flips back and become and look like the ears are of a cat. Amazing. Yeah. And the steel tipped high heels. I well, mean, yeah, I'm doesn't... surprised I haven't seen more of those at cosplay events, to be honest, because <laughs> I reckon that would be something that, I know, people would want to do. I have, a, I have a feeling you probably wouldn't want to walk around in them for uh, for eight hours during a day. Well, I wouldn't uh, anyway. <laughs> but she does do a backflip out of a window wearing the high heels. And so she is... spots that. <laughs> I know. It's like she spots that landing. Mm-hmm. In heels. I mean, she should be on the U.S. Olympics gymnastic team because that is pretty amazing. Backflip out the window, spot landing in heels and a suit. And again, it sets up where she um, essentially gets into the car with uh, a counsellor from Gotham. And that leads to one of those other moments that you said where you see her being clever, using her femininity to her own advantage and uh, playing on people's stereotypes of of femininity as well um where she's making the exchange because essentially not only has she just stolen a pearl necklace from Bruce Wayne's safe but she has lifted prints from it and that's her real aim the necklace was simply just it caught her fancy mm-hmm. sparkly curiosity killed the cat type of thing yeah. she wanted them she took them yeah and she does this handover of these prints in a seedy bar, kind of very reminiscent of Falcone's underground bar yeah. with these people who are linked to this industrialist who is also on the board of um, Wayne Enterprises. Yeah. And this is Daggett. Mm-hmm. He's essentially seen the blood in the water is, is the, the kind of phrase. He's seen that Wayne Enterprises are going down and this is his opportunity to yeah. take over Wayne Enterprises. He's an he's a entrepreneur, investor, industrial shark who's sniffed blood and he's after the control of, of Wayne Enterprises. Mm-hmm. And she's delivering these fingerprints to him and again she takes the counsellor that brings him in, passes over a phone to get the thumbprints to these guys because she's wanting her money and the cops the police show up because the counselor's gone missing. They've just used his cell phone to get her accomplice, Lucy, I think. Yeah. Like, coming from Batman Year Batman One. Batman Year One, yeah. Go, you see her go from trying to be... You wouldn't hurt a, a poor, innocent girl being fairly sort of sassy and so on to punching, out, outright fierce fighting, punching. You see the cleverness where she grabs his hand and puts it over the gun and over the trigger and she's shooting people using his prints, Mm -hmm. making sure her prints go nowhere near it. And then when the police and the SWAT team come storming through, you see her switch to this frail woman who's screaming. She's frightened in shock and... Mm. As if she's caught in the crossfire. Yeah, Yeah. uh, Yeah. the damsel in distress almost were. And that allows her to make her escape. Excellent sort of the the, the four different versions of Selena Kyle slash Catwoman in one scene. It's really good. Yeah, and I love love that scene. I think it's one of my favorites in the film. And again, really cements Anne Hathaway as one of the best Catwomen uh, that are out there. 
and genuinely someone that has that that will, will take that role has taken that role and turned it into something for themselves but i love that the scene ends with the counselor who she's kidnapped for possibly days at this stage <laughs> who ends the scene with call me um, which is which is just a great little cool joke we i'm watching it this week definitely i, I can definitely see the humor in this film is probably a lot more um even though it's a very dense film there's probably a lot of uh, a lot of deep um, meaning in this film, but humour is quite the heavy. Catwoman, well. I think, is the main point of of the humour mm. in, in this and her interaction with the Batman or with just other people. And it's it's I think it's the humour of her using her femininity for her own gain and her own purposes. Then that contrast between how she operates, which is a bit more dirty compared to Batman. She doesn't mind if she tells you to look over there, and as you look. She smacks you in the head and knocks you out or steals your wallet. Yeah. Whereas Batman, it's up front, it's honour, we will do it face to face and it will be a 50-50 chance. Whoever is better is better. For her, I want to get the advantage and I want to make that count for me, not for you. Absolutely. And they do a great job of, of really kind of drawing her character. You know, she is still living in the slums of, of Gotham, yet she goes out to these high class parties. She is phenomenally good looking she's amazingly well dressed but there's a couple of little things that she lets slip to show that she's not part of that society and there's a great a great moment where they have her dressed in essentially like a cosplaying as audrey hepburn uh, yeah great moment where she, she at the just, airport yeah, yeah where she looks just amazing in that scene and you go she has all this stuff available to her living in the slums of of gotham but this is her way out these are the things that she uses these are her tools that she uses to try and get out of the, of the bad area of Gotham, the lower class area of Gotham. And, and one of the things then that she says at this party with Bruce Wayne, uh, where again he takes back the pearl necklace that she's stolen from him, and it's one of the themes that this film, I think, tries to bring out, and it all comes to the idea of the Wall Street crash that occurred, what, in 2007, mm-hmm. 2008, the economic crisis hit. Well, exactly. Still in Ireland, so, <laughs> exactly. I mean, the, the the banking crisis and the economic crisis in Europe, in particular in Ireland, that we have gone through, and that theme is very much prevalent here. And she makes a really important statement where she says, "You people have lived so large and left so little for the rest of us. A storm is coming, and this storm is really what." Bane and uh, Talia al Ghul used to manipulate the people of Gotham. This idea of the the lower class rising up against the privileged of the city. There's many examples that they use throughout the film of pressed people of the city who aren't privileged. You know, you've got the orphanage, which is seen seen many times throughout the throughout the movie as kind of a touch point of people that aren't as privileged as Bruce Wayne was to be an orphan in a millionaire's home or a billionaire's family. You see that a lot through John Blake character played by Jessica Gordon-Levitt in the film. He comes from an orphanage. He's lived his life fighting his way to the top. He sees he sees Bruce Wayne once as a child and knows instantly this must be the guy that's Batman. He has that he has that inkling. We get to see this young cop. He's idealistic. He's in a sense cleverer than some of his superiors and not only is it that he he has this empathy with Bruce Wayne and it's another jolt that Bruce Wayne gets to come out of this isolation that he's kind of imposed upon himself, this self-exile as a result of the Harvey Dent death and turn to 
Two-Face. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's that Officer Blake recognises in Bruce Wayne this idea of a mask, this idea that as an orphan he has to put on a smile. And he sees that when Bruce Wayne came to visit the orphanage, that Bruce Wayne was putting on a mask. Mm-hmm. He somehow empathises and understands that Bruce Wayne is Batman, and he gets that. And he goes to Wayne Manor, and he confronts him to say, maybe you need to get a bit of fresh air, take some coffee, um, to take a good look at the details, because some of those details might need your help. In a sense, this leads back to what you were saying about using those fears and manipulation of the people of Gotham, the working class, this idea that even the Wayne Foundation, which has been talked about in Batman Begins as being philanthropic, giving money for the monorail... Monorail? Monorail? <laughs> uh, sorry, uh, couldn't resist. The monorail, you know, that so much that Thomas Wayne was trying to do was to, to bring some good to Gotham, what essentially Bruce Wayne was trying to do. And even now, that has failed. Yeah. Because they can't give any money from the profits of the Wayne Enterprises to things like the orphanage. Yeah, and it really takes a character like John Blake to hold up the mirror to Bruce and go, "Look what you're, look what you're missing out on. Look at all the things that you're that you're you closing yourself off has left to our city of Gotham, which you used to protect." There's, absolutely, we'll talk about it now. You know, John Blake is um, is absolutely set up as not the antithesis of Batman, not the antithesis of Bruce Wayne. He's set up as exactly the same character as Bruce Wayne, a young idealistic character in this corrupted city who is incorruptible. It's shown many times that his character is incorruptible. He has his way of doing things, what he believes is right, and he will not go against what... uh, He will not um, do what everybody else says to him if he believes it's the wrong way. I think it's a brilliant... um, I mean, that scene between him and Jim Gordon were... Bane has essentially revealed the the lie about Harvey Dent. Again, it's amazing how this the past catching up on some of these characters is really brought out in this film. Mm-hmm. Like, again, this plays out with Blake and with Jim Gordon. And Blake is essentially looking at him going, I would never do that. You should never have done that. To essentially allow uh, Batman, the Batman, to be implicated in something that he didn't do to be hunted and it is that aspect it's the justice element of it that he is so keen on that that really drives him is okay whatever the reasons for doing it which was to not sully the reputation of harvey dent for blake for john blake it is that an innocent man was tarnished with a crime that he never committed and was hunted and chased and it meant that he was never on the streets again stopping crime. Instead, it was the Dent Act. In that sense, you could argue it was good. But for Blake, for me, I see that it is that sort of moralistic choice that someone is being punished for something they didn't do. Yeah, and just to kind of make a comment about the Gotham TV show here, really, the showrunners of the show have said they're going to take a bit from uh, from this these section of films, these uh, these Christopher Nolan films, I wonder how much they're going to use from this from this Blake character um, in, in relation to a young Gordon. So in this film, you've got an older Gordon shepherding a very young, uh, a very young cop in the city. Uh, in the Gotham TV series, we're going to have Harvey Bullock shepherding a very young cop just joining the force in, in the city. Um, so I wonder if they're going to take this kind of path where 
you know, it's the incorruptible cop who starts to have that eroded uh, over time. Um, you know, I wonder if this if, if that's the way they play it. Um, but if it's, it's even down to little things, the little lessons that, that John Blake learns during the time. There's a great moment where he where he try where he tries where he takes a gun out and tries to, uh, as while he's having a fight with two of two of the bad guys. Yeah, two of the construction workers. Yeah, yeah. he tries to have a, a great great. It takes a great shot, bouncing it off something to kill the yeah, guy. Really, awesome. really cool. But then throws away the gun. Gun. Uh, gun's not for me. Essentially, yeah, he which, can he can no longer interrogate the. Well, that doesn't sound much better. <laughs> you know, he can no longer find out the answers. Uh, waterboard them. <laughs> no, um, find out the answers. Yeah, to he can no longer uh, ask them and question them to get further information to help lead to the ultimate answer and for him to solve the case. Yeah, so he's come to the same conclusion that, that Bruce has. Guns are not the way for him. He will use intimidation methods going forward, um, which I love. I think it's really good. Like waterboarding? <laughs> Maybe waterboarding is a bit far. Knuckle dusters. <laughs> but it's legal. And that's kind of really how they set him up to become the next Batman. Um, you know, they call him Robin at the end of the film, but he's definitely the next Batman. Exactly. And it's also... One of the ways in which Nolan is essentially setting it up again for other people to take on. Mm-hmm. Now, in a sense, they haven't actually done that with the new Batman versus Superman, but it was an option for them. And from that as well, there is also that we find this whole idea of the sewer system. And again, this kind of links back to this lower underground of, of Gotham. And again, it's John Blake that says that all these bodies are washing up out of the sewers. She's trying to investigate them. Selina Kyle with the counsellor in the bar when she's handing over the prince. They end up chasing the people that were there to take the prince off it down the sewers. What you come to is Bane's lair in Gotham. Um, and this becomes a really interesting point for Bane for the League of Shadows resurgent. And this is because it is actually directly under the research and development wing of Wayne Enterprises where Lucius Fox is back again and almost as a stand-in for Alfred, I think, uh, because obviously Alfred goes very quickly um, after about an hour from this film with the whole Rachel Dawes letter uh, that we, we mentioned before. But it's underneath Wayne Enterprises, an area where the orphans, and again, connected back to Blake, and this is how we get to find out more about this this lair, is where the orphans, the unemployed, and so on, are all finding work. Because all these construction enterprises being done through Daggett construction. And there's all these links starting to be made between Daggett, between Bane, there's Catwoman, in a sense, trying to find a way out from this, because she's realised maybe... She's gone involved with people that she didn't need to or didn't want to. So essentially, uh, what we essentially what we find out from this is, you know, how do you build your own your own back cave or how do you build your own secret lair within a city and nobody ever find out? You employ orphans who have been thrown out in the street by Wayne Enterprises, Um, and this is this is how you get it done without anybody knowing about it. Well, exactly, but it's um, a cool, it's a cool, it's a cool place. Not only have they built the lair, they've also done construction under the full city of Gotham. They've put up construction which is actually built of explosives all, all across the city uh, by using these contracts that Daggett has, has gotten signed for them, which plays into the big plan or big plot of... Uh, yeah, and we kind of see this Russian doll aspect coming in where we actually see that the Catwoman events, she was essentially working for Daggett to get the fingerprints. Daggett, we ultimately see, is working with or working for Bane in the end. And then we also get the reveal that Bane is part of a larger organization, which is the League of Shadows. Mm-hmm. 
So it's all this Russian doll element that, that, that comes in. And it all comes back to the League of Shadows and ultimately the memory of Razal Ghul as personified by his daughter, yeah. which is Miranda Tate, Talia Al Ghul. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The plan starts to get revealed as as we go. They use the premise of the Lower Gotham versus Upper Gotham. They use the premise of the uh, the downtrodden people versus the privileged a number of times to get their to get their way. But the first stage is the bombastic amazing scene that we saw in the original trailer before six months before the film came out where Bane walks into a, a football stadium and essentially sets off the explosives across Gotham City this uh, is where the plan is announced essentially yeah yeah so and what a lovely lovely voice. <laughs> but it is a fantastic scene it's absolutely beautifully shot amazing amazing I, I like destruction films and uh, this is probably the best destruction I've seen in, in a film in a long time <laughs> and certainly considering it's Pittsburgh Steelers home stadium <laughs> I think it's amazing as a See, Baltimore Ravens fan absolutely. it would certainly ease our passage in AFC North yes if every member certainly considering last season if every member of the Steelers ended off in a sinkhole in the middle of the state in the middle of the stadium <laughs> except for yeah, one not that uh, no I mean obviously <laughs> obviously the Pittsburgh Steelers present a brilliant challenge but <laughs> They're essentially the stand-in uh, American football team. I mean, what an yeah. honour for them. You can, I think, see from an aerial shot, you can see Heinz Field um, on behind the scoreboard. So, I mean, that is, it's a really good honour, I think, for, for the Steelers. Absolutely. Although it pays me to say it. Um, <laughs> That's not your Bane voice again, no. No, no it's not. <laughs> Grand. Um, there's, one little, there's one little thing that I probably missed, uh, that I missed out in the past when, when, when watching this film. Um, that's quite important here. So very early on in the film, the mayor has returned to it in Dark Knight. In an early scene in the film, he basically says that uh, the Dent Act won't be repealed under his watch. At the stadium, his his the box that he's in watching the game, that's one of the first things to explode within the city. The first, thing, first person to be killed within Gotham in the new plan is the mayor. Once he's taken out, just after that is when the Dent Act is repealed. And I think that's a nice little touch from Chris Nolan that essentially the mayor predicts his own death. The mayor predicts that he's going to die because absolutely otherwise the plan couldn't take place. So that's really an, an interesting, uh, interesting little twist there. But yeah, essentially what they what what Bane says to the people of Gotham is that the city is now for the people. They can essentially live here, do whatever they want. But anybody that contravenes the rules or tries to leave is going to be killed. Um, and that's the that's the plan uh, to begin with. And if anyone comes in, the bomb. Will go off and kill everybody in the city. Yeah, yeah, because essentially it links back to then Doctor Pavel at the start. The cold fusion reactor is the bomb. Yeah, yeah. I told you it was confusing. It's it's quite a complex film, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's very complex. Part of Bane's manipulation of Gotham and and, and his associates like Daggers, I suppose, is is to take over the stock exchange in a scene that I I find is really reminiscent of uh, of Fight Club. You know, in the background, while some while two guys who work on the stock exchange floor are getting their shoes cleaned, you've got three of the lower class workers that would be would be in there. They've got a courier, they've got the shoe shine guy, and they've got um, a cleaner. All yeah. minimum wage type jobs in the middle of the stock exchange, and they go in and take it over. Yeah, all Bane's guys. all Bane's men, obviously. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not just that he's convinced everybody to, to join him. These are these are Bane's men who are in the in those placements. But the the whole purpose is to hack the stock exchange using Bruce's fingerprints that were stolen by uh, by uh, Selena Kyle earlier on, and to hack the stock exchange to destroy Bruce Wayne and take and away Wayne his. Enterprises. Yeah. Exactly. From that, actually, 
there's a chase and it's the first time we see the Batman. Bruce Wayne has put on the bat suit, he's on the bat pod and he chases down uh, a number of the uh, the henchmen who have escaped from the the stock exchange. Yeah. And once again, first time we see uh, we see Bane coming out here. The first, this is the first time we hear properly Bane's theme from the film. Uh, so we see their first bat, bat suit. We also hear Bane's theme over the top of it. So, and isn't this yeah. theme the one that Hans Zimmer basically asked loads of people to send in to him them chanting, doing very... I, I think it was just chant into yeah. a microphone. Yeah. He took that and he managed to somehow pull together the Bane theme, which was just this... And the chanting yeah, over it the uh, into Bane's theme. Mm-hmm. Really good. Yeah, the crowdsource. But from this as well, we get to see Batman comes back. The Batpod with its dodgy wheels. Go on. <laughs> You're the one that <laughs> spotted side. it, actually. I mean, I hadn't yeah. spotted it. I kind of agree with you now, yeah. but at the time... It still looks cool. It, it still will looks always cool. look it cool. Matter. It doesn't matter. But, but then... what happens to the guns? I mean, obviously, <laughs> it's 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 that moment of that CGI, obviously, right? Yeah, um, it can't yeah, happen it's exactly. But, but it's fab. It's, it's still fab. It's and still cool, good. Whatever. And it's still <laughs> it's still good when it happens with Catwoman on it, which is another great scene with Catwoman on the bat pod. Brilliant. But you know, we suddenly get to see him with his disruptor gun. Yeah, his little um, EMP device. Yeah, isn't it? yeah. And it's... then we get to see the bat. Yeah, the bat. Yeah, the the finally they bring in the bat, the real bat wing. Unfortunately, Lucius, despite being amazing at technology, isn't very good at come up with names, so we just come up with the bat. But I it would have been, it's the bat wing. It's a cool machine. Yeah, and it? again with Lucius, it's that interaction with him and Bruce Wayne where he just goes, "Oh, for old times' sake, let me." take you down to the R&D and just show you what cool stuff I've been working on. And he gets the bat from it. It just fires up and comes out and it's really... It's just, it's one of the, actually, it's one of the funniest moments ever with the guy who's, the the cop guy, his hat comes off and he's kind of looking up at where this bat, this like helicopter or whatever they think it is, plane... Is going and his hat comes off and he's kind of got his false teeth in it. Looks <laughs> so funny. Um, slightly distracts from the scene for me because I can I just look at that now, exactly. going, "That's really funny." So, but you get a great introduction of the bat. Absolutely. So, in case anybody doesn't know, most of us want the Batmobile. John is absolutely wants the bat. That's his. Uh, that's his machine of choice. Uh, it would definitely help in traffic. Oh, it's brilliant. But unfortunately, this is a machine that is hugely distracting. And what essentially has happened in the scene is that Batman has gotten chased by the entire Gotham City PD, essentially letting Bane away um, because he's distracted the police with his wonderful toys, unfortunately. Yeah, but what a wonderful toy (laughs) it is. And I mean, later on, there's the scene where trying to chase down the the fusion bomb from Talia and the bat is is trying to outrun missiles that have been fired at them. It's such a great scene where it it twists and turns over one of the skyscrapers. You get a really great scene where Catwoman is in the bat as well. Batman goes, this isn't a car. It takes off as the two of them escape from Daggett's pad in, in one of the scenes during the film. And it's flying through Gotham. It's at night. All the skyscrapers are lit up. You just see this 
this aerial vehicle flying down amongst the skyscrapers. To me, it was so reminiscent of Blade Runner, which we know is one of Christopher Nolan's top films. And it looked really, really, really cool. I was so happy to see this and to see that it, it didn't look like a bat, but the rotor underneath, brilliant. You love yeah. <laughs> That's your I love the bat pod from the Dark Knight, and then all of a sudden it was like, "Oh, they've trumped it again." It's like it was like, "Oh, I want one of these for my garage uh, or something like that." Yeah. Not like an ever for afford your, for your helipad. Like that. I was like, "This is so cool!" Like, I mean, in fairness, I just loved the ramp up. It was, you know, it was the tumbler. It was, it was the the Batmobile. Yeah. Then it was the Batmobile that bizarrely had a motorbike stuffed in it. The bat <laughs> pod, yeah, somehow. <laughs> But it was cool. Nonetheless, yeah. it was cool. Then the bat pods there, and he gets. I no, he gets the bat. And he gets the bat. Oh, what should I call it? The bat plane. I can't. I no, it doesn't is the seem bat. right. It's it the, the bat. bat. Lucius name. But I love that. And I mean, <laughs> this is one of the things. Like all this gadgetry is so good for me. It just reminds me of being a kid. Oh, brilliant. absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Brilliant stuff, brilliant stuff. Now I've got to work out how we segue back into the storyline of the actual <laughs> movie after that. So essentially, let's go back to Batman eventually catches up with one of the guys, the um, the hackers, essentially, but it's too late. He's already hacked Bruce's account. He's already bankrupted Bruce Wayne, essentially. Uh, but he tracks it back to Daggett's place. So Daggett's, uh, Daggett has been leading this, um, this destruction of Bruce Wayne and Wayne Enterprises for his own gain essentially yeah. but Bane's there and uh, Bane essentially has finished his usefulness of Daggett because he also had his purpose was to take down Bruce Wayne so he kills Daggett very unceremoniously just crushes his head essentially yeah you just hear this yeah. scream off camera again relatively bloodless mm-hmm. um, but the impact of what's being done um, is really interesting and again it's one of those things Bane's kind of preferred method of killing and you see this uh, with one of his henchmen where he just crushes the windpipe mm-hmm. with Daggett you just see him go for the head almost like it's crushing his head and um, and then later on when Gotham is isolated all the bridges have been blown uh, one of the special forces that's infiltrated there to find out what's going on from the, the US military I think it's the guy who's actually from Rescue Me yeah. he's one of the, the firemen from Rescue Me he just puts him on the floor because um, I think he's been wounded yeah. and he just and rests his just, knee on him and uh, kind right. of just gradually lets the air uh, go out of him so it's really quite brutal really yeah. you know see the the eyes dim as, as you as they're being killed. Yeah. Um, and it seems to be Bane's preferred method of killing. Absolutely. But again, we, we kind of have this, this first meeting of, uh, of Batman and Catwoman where, they're, where they, uh, they battle back to back at, at Daggett's place uh, against, against Bane's men. Um, very cool. Uh, very no cool guns. Scene. No guns. Yeah, very cool scene. Again, uh, Batman trying to impose his will and his, uh, his stance on Catwoman. She's very much, what are you talking about? Where's the fun in that? Where's yeah. the fun without the guns? Yeah. Yeah, really cool. Really, really cool. Again, it just shows that really great dynamic between Batman and, and Catwoman. And that's so important for for these characters and for the, that dynamic within this film. But then I think it's also important to mention a few other things. Again, I think coming back to the, the sewer system, and we have that amazing fight between Bane and between Batman. It's essentially set up by Catwoman looking for a way out. And again, it's one of those aspects of the relationship of Catwoman uh, and the Batman, where she lets him down, but he still keeps saying, there is more to you than simply a thief who's in it for herself. Mm-hmm. 
you do care about these people. And I think that comes up even later when Batman comes back or Bruce Wayne comes back to Gotham after being in the Lazarus pit. He sees her giving an apple that she's stolen to an orphan or to a kid on the street. And he goes, that's a kind thing to do for a thief. But this moment in time, he ultimately is getting let down by her. Mm -hmm. And she wants that way out. And he gets caught by Bane. And what you have is an amazing sequence, fight sequence. Again, I kind of don't get it when people say that Christopher Nolan can't do action sequences. The whole thing where Batman knocks out the lights in Bane's lair. The camera is focusing on Bane. He's going around. And it's only when Bane just comes and grabs Batman and all of a sudden you see Batman really close. I mean, that's an amazing bit of filming, a bit of direction, a bit of lighting. But I think it's hugely important as well. It it tells a huge story about who Bane is. Bane is the League of Shadows, as he says. Um, He is all the methods that Batman trained for, you know, two, three years and then used on the streets of Gotham for a couple of years. Yeah, that's fine. You're just play acting. I am the League of Shadows. I know all these tricks. I've learned them. I lived in them. That's that's a great challenge for Batman to have someone who's much better at everything, at, at all of these tools that he's tried to perfect in Gotham because it's millions of miles away from where the League of Shadows are based. Um, but if you're yeah. up against the League of Shadows and they're the real League of Shadows, you're you're done for. I mean, he starts the whole scene with victory has defeated you. Mm-hmm. It's this idea that you won, but you've become sloppy, you've become old, you've become maybe irrelevant. Again, as you say, it comes back to the League of Shadows and, I mean, that great phrase that he says when the lights get dim, he goes, you think darkness is your ally? You merely adopted the dark. I was born in it and moulded by it as he grabs it. And then, obviously, you get that hugely significant scene where the cowl is broken, Mm -hmm. is punched through, and then you get him lifting the Batman up and doing a he does his finishing a WWE move, move on <laughs> he him. Does his, he does his his um his Mortal Kombat move where he's where he essentially snaps uh, his back. It's not that's not exactly what he does though. He dis- dislocates his spine. Uh, we've been our, our research has told us it's not. He doesn't break his back. If he'd broken his back, there's no way he would have returned from uh, from anywhere, let alone the Lazarus Pit. Yeah, but he has crushed Batman's spine, dislocated it. And just peels off part of the cow and kind of nonchalantly drops it. And he explains to him, I want you to see where I'm going to get the armory to essentially destroy Gotham. Mm -hmm. And it is Wayne Enterprise's own armory. It brings us into this whole period then where Bane takes Batman to the Lazarus Pit. Mm -hmm. And this whole idea of the Lazarus Pit, which I think is done really really well it's fascinating because i think in the movie it's not it's 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 just called the pit isn't it it's not and it's in an ancient an ancient part Part of the world ancient part of the world yeah but it's essentially the lazarus pit yeah but it's this idea where you start to really get an uneasy feeling about the the motives of bane he wants to crush batman not just physically which he has just done he wants to show batman his city being destroyed it is torture of the soul torture of of his mind of his emotions of his empathy and feelings that he has for other people by saying we're going to hold out the string to them and you will see this and you will know that it is simply like playing with a cat uh, with a with a ball of wool He's taken down the Lazarus Pit. And it comes, I think, then to one of the other huge themes of this, which is rebirth. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important to say the Lazarus Pit in, in the DC comic books is essentially, it's almost a machine that, that Ra's al Ghul walks into or crawls into dying at the at the edge of death and gets reborn. Um, it's a, it's a really comic booky kind of thing. It's it's you know how do you make sure that it, that a villain even though he gets beaten up by Batman over and over again, how do you make sure that he comes back over and over again? You give him a rejuvenation device. You give him a uh, you give him a tube that he can crawl into and, and rejuvenate. I love what Chris what Chris Nolan does in this film with the Lazarus Pit. It's really it's really interesting. And as you say, John, the uh, the idea of a, of a rebirth. Um, for each of the characters is really is really interesting. Well, I, I think that's it. I think we see the rebirth of the League of Shadows from it. You essentially get the origin tale of Bane and Talia from the, this Lazarus pit, this prison, and it allows for the rebirth of the League of Shadows. Bruce Wayne, Batman, is destroyed by Bane. His memory is destroyed by what happened in the Dark Knight. And he builds himself out of that essential isolation and confinement by coming out that symbolic rebirth from the Lazarus pit by escaping from it. This idea that a prison, if you consider what you've done, is also about rehabilitation and not just about punishment. And that brings about this rebirth. And for me, as you may have guessed, massive love mysticism that kind of within comic books love doctor strange that mystical occult theme and so you would kind of think that maybe i didn't like what they did with the lazarus pit or the pit in in the dark knight rises because essentially it strips all that mysticism away from it but i actually have the reverse i love the fact that he took something that was so out there a resurrection pit Yeah, absolutely. And made it fit into a, a general normal world or a heightened world, but still give it a thematic and symbolic significance of this idea of rebirth, rejuvenation. Absolutely. I, I do also love that the, the trigger for Batman to go was essentially uh, one of the other prisoners telling him, what kind of girly man are you? A child did this, um, which is which is where he just goes, "Ah, oh, right, screw it. I'm going to keep working out, and I'm going to go and, and and go and do the jump and make this." Yeah. And it has two origin stories related around it, yeah, within one film, exactly. Yeah. Bane and Talia, and I think it's also important just to say at this point that is this idea of redemption. I think that's another important theme. You know, I've been talking about Harvey Dent and the impact that happened from the last film. But what you also see is a redemption of Batman in this film from what happened in in The Dark Knight. You also get a redemption of Jim Gordon. Um, Even though it gets quite low for Jim Gordon in this film, he ultimately comes out of it much better because the truth has finally managed to just iron out those creases. Absolutely. And I think to an extent you get this redemption of Selina Kyle Catwoman, mm-hmm. who has been stealing things. Obviously, she's more layers of grey than being black or white. She's betrayed Batman a few times. He's kind of noted that, but then she comes good in a sense later yeah. on. So back in Gotham, Bane's really kind of um, using his manipulation to get the the I suppose the underprivileged people. To rise up against the privileged people, drag them out of their homes, take all their take all their belongings, and share them out amongst the people, um, and then set like essentially pull them into kangaroo courts, which are set up uh, in I think it's the library of of the city. Uh, but the important part is that they're presided over by 
Scarecrow. They're presided over by uh, yeah. by the only returning actor. Killian um, Murphy returns as Dr. Jonathan Crane. Sorry, Scarecrow. not the only returning actor. The only returning villain, I think, for yeah. for all three films. Yeah. As the Scarecrow, as the judge, in these kind of mock trials where it is the people versus the privileged. Mm-hmm. And they get two choices, death by Snoo Snoo or Snoo Snoo. Uh, exactly, yeah. <laughs> e- it's exile, exile or death. Or, ultimately, Jim Gordon is given death by exile. Yeah. yeah. Because exile is walking across the, the river that is frozen and ultimately going to a cold, watery and very chilly death. These courts, this justice that has been handed out, is a lie. Bane says that Gotham will endure, but it's all a lie. Because yeah. actually, this manipulation is about one thing. The destruction of Gotham. Not the salvation from corruption of Gotham that Batman wants. It is the destruction of it. Because the League of Shadows, going back to Razal Ghul's mentality, they've had enough chances you can't give criminals an inch. This is remove them. Absolutely. And there is this bomb going around that is ticking down to having a nuclear explosion over Gotham to wipe it out. Exactly. Regardless of what any of the Gothamites think, regardless of what they do over the course of these of these five months uh, since the bomb has been started, uh, regardless of what they do, the city's going to be going to be destroyed anyway. It seems like Bane is just toying with them, really. Yeah. Um, he's just having fun at the idea of these people thinking that they can rise up against the privileged and take over the city themselves. And the League of Shadows believes it's done. The only thing that will save this city is its complete and utter annihilation, essentially. And you see then this underground movement of the people of Gotham essentially being aided and abetted primarily by Officer Blake, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, uh, Jim Gordon, where they're trying to keep tabs on these trucks going around. One of them has the bomb. There is this idea that some unknown Gothamite has got the trigger mm-hmm. and they will let it blow, this unassuming person. Yeah. And, really and the fear- police are all trapped down yeah. in the the sewers and in the underground yeah. um, and they are gradually being sort of prepared to be released out and this is all helped out by the return of Batman. Yeah. As Bruce Wayne has escaped the Lazarus Pit, he's been reborn, he now is comfortable in assuming the mantle of Batman again. Um, now, there were some issues with timelines, I remember, from um, on this, that, yeah. you know, how there was something like, there was three months in the Lazarus Pit, then there's mention of 23 days till the nuclear bomb blows up, all of a sudden, Batman's there, and there's 12 hours left, or 48 yeah. hours. There's a lot of time jumping going on. Yeah. But I think, I think, ultimately, you can assume that there are periods of time that are sped up and slowed down, and the intercutting... I didn't. I never really got that at the yeah, time I think, when I, I think watched it's, it. But... I think it's the same kind of joke that you have with a, with a James Bond movie, where he, he disarms a bomb, and he disarms it at 0.01 seconds rather than 10 minutes before the bomb goes off. You know, it's, it's that kind of question over, you know, the fact that there's five months gap here. Yes. Bruce Wayne arrives back in one day before the bomb goes off. What was he doing for the other 22 days? 
we do know what he was doing. He was setting up that awesome bat symbol that turns into flame because that must have taken a good 20 days to set that up yeah. uh, where he sets fire to the to the wall to, to declare himself back into Gotham uh, and the big bat symbol. That must have taken ages. Yeah, you would have thought there would be more pressing priorities. Yeah, um, he probably employed a lot of the uh, a lot of the, <laughs> the orphan kids that built the, uh, built the stuff. One of the things, I don't know whether you used to do this <laughs> as a kid. I know I did. Um, I don't know whether you did, um, for those of you listening, and It'd be really useful to know if you did or whether it was just me and um Uh-oh. but no, <laughs> like I always much. remember on Bond films and it would have been the same with some of the old sort of war films that I would watch when my dad was alive and so on. But I would actually purposefully do the countdown and go, Oh well the bad guys would have won, like, you know, this bomb <laughs> would have gone off. Why is James Bond still able to go, you know, it's gone from the, the 12 minutes between when it was on 10 seconds <laughs> and like three seconds left. And I always remember having that. I kind of had a similar thing with the countdown of the bomb here, where I was like, you know, can this all happen within this time that's slowly ticking down on the nuclear bomb? And. Um, and it probably couldn't, but yeah. sure, you have to suspend disbelief a bit. It's cool. It's cool, but I love, I love how it wraps into it wraps into the end, uh, the end kind of battle between good guys versus bad guys. You've got the, you've got the the criminals of uh, that are sorry, the criminals. I say the people who've been uh, who've been encouraged by Bane to take on his position, essentially taking on the cops of the city. Uh, you got that huge standoff, which is awesome. Um, then you've got finally a the bat family um you haven't seen that in any of the films you now have essentially bruce uh, as batman you've got um we'll say we'll call him robin john blake uh you've got catwoman and you've got gordon um all taking on the bomb uh, as yeah. as the bat family together for the first time which you never saw in any of the films you never saw really the background group running together to stop the final the final bomb it's really cool yeah or snogging Catwoman before the final or bomb. Catwoman. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure Bruce always snogged Catwoman before. Again, it's one of those priority <laughs> things. So it's one of those things that happens in films where you kind of go, okay, so there's Batman, Catwoman, and Jim Gordon, and they're all stood there listening to Talia Al Ghul explain her evil plan. Whilst there is a, I don't know, 26 megaton nuclear warhead <laughs> in the back of the trunk. And then it's not like, well, forget what she's saying because she's dying anyway and she's crazy because she's trying to blow up the entire city. Let's just get this um, out of here. They then decide that, you know, it's perfect timing to have a good old snog. It's kind of, why not? Let's survive this and then snog it. You can always make time for a good snog, John. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) But it's one of those things where I was like, that's kind of a bit. It's just very annoying. It's movie. It's movie. No, but it is annoying. I kind of got a bit annoyed there with that, and I do think this is one of the elements where reviewers at the time said that this was the most comic book movie of the three Batman, or it had that element to it. Maybe I can see it for a brief moment in time at, at that point, but I mean, I don't necessarily agree with it, but. And that moment, a, I can. You know what? As a comic book fan, I'm delighted with that comparison. You know, I'm, well, uh, exactly. I think there is just that little tiny thing at the end of the film where he runs off with the bomb out into the middle of the ocean. Yeah. 
that the the meme that was going around on the internet at the time of Batman sixty six, where he runs around with the bomb, going, "You can't, you can't find anywhere to put a bomb these sometimes," and um, you know, <laughs> yeah. no, that's, that's it's a true. little bit, that you know, true. take the bomb, drag it out to the middle of the ocean. It's a bit, but what if you can't eat seafood in Gotham? I guess um, for the next millennium. So Batman attaches the nuclear bomb to the bat and flies out over across Gotham, out into the bay and in towards the sea where it detonates mm. and explodes, saving Gotham from a very fiery um, and atomic end, oh, yeah, in a sense. Um, and it's, again, it's a, it's a really emotional bit because this moves then into, again, an epilogue, which I think Christopher Nolan does really well. And you see Alfred's return. And we haven't really talked too much about Alfred, but I find in this film the relationship between Bruce Wayne and Alfred really quite affecting. And it's really brought to the forefront where he's he's sobbing, he's crying over Bruce Wayne's gravestone uh, at Wayne Manor. Um, and again, I kind of hold this up as an example to those that would say that Christopher Nolan can't do emotion in his films, that they're clinical. Yeah in that sense. Yes, I can understand why people would make that argument, but all the way through from the fight between Alfred and Bruce Wayne on the stairs over the letter from Rachel Dawes and the fact that Alfred is saying, this is the last thing I'm going to do for you as Bruce Wayne Batman, which is to send some data on Selina Kyle to Lucius to get it analysed and all this type of thing. It's a really affecting and emotional uh, journey that these two have. And Michael Caine really nails this. Um, And it it makes me feel really sad when I saw that initially. Uh, I think it's an excellent... Absolutely, um, particularly with Alfred, you know, when he's when he's part cry- of the film. Yeah, particularly with Alfred crying over Bruce's grave, he's actually facing towards Thomas Wayne's grave, saying, "I failed you, I've actually failed you. I let him die," um, which is really really affecting. You know, it's, it, as I say, in this film, probably Alfred has even less screen time than he's had in many of the films, but I think this is really affecting. It's the it's the death of the death of the final uh, member of the Wayne family. Um, but yeah, that the the. the uh, epilogue continues, you know, to share out, essentially putting the final nail in the coffin, in a way, to uh, to Bruce Wayne's legacy. And, you have uh, Jim Gordon again doing a narration over how central Batman is now to the save as as a savior to Gotham. Mm-hmm. You have the will of Bruce Wayne, even though it's a more modest will, being dealt out by his lawyers. Yeah, I love the little joke with um where's that piece of where where are those pearls that are missing off the manifest? He's obviously taken them to give them to Selena yeah. finally. And, and what we find out is that Bruce Wayne has survived ultimately. Mm-hmm. That the sobbing that we've seen from Alfred um was unfortunately uh, part of the plan to keep the notion that Bruce Wayne is dead um, in that sense, but that they are reunited in an Italian restaurant uh, on the banks of the Arno uh, that Alfred likes to go to to have a Fernabranca, which is also the most disgusting drink in the world. (laughs) I did try it. um, Not because of this film, I hope. 
maybe. maybe. <laughs> um, <clears throat> try it, uh, see whether you like it, and send in your comments. Um, <laughs> but, you know, again, it's the contrast to the sort of divisive relationship that Alfred and Bruce Wayne seem to have had within this film where ultimately they split and you don't see Alfred in the film until he's sobbing over his gravestone. Yeah. And it's just this this quiet nod that you find you're safe, I'm now happy again. Yeah. And then you get and he's the... with yeah, and he's with Selena Kyle, which is lovely, you know, a nice yeah. little nice little scene. He's finally met his met his match and in many, many ways, which is really cool. But I think what's really fun about this scene uh, is, is something that, that happened around the time. Because of Inception coming out, which had a very, uh, a very, uh, I suppose, an ending that had a lot of interpretation to it, that people were mm-hmm. interpreting that at the end of this film, when uh, Alfred sees Bruce, is that real? Does that happen? Is it just a dream inside the mind of Alfred? <laughs> which I think is amazing. It's obviously not a dream. This is obviously what actually happened. Yeah. Bruce did it because that's what Alfred told him to. But I love that people took Inception even further and brought it into the Batman world. And that's yeah. really fun. And then you ultimately find out here in the ending that John Blake, his name is Robin, mm-hmm. is given coordinates to the entrance of the Batcave, goes in. Does a bit of splunking again. Yeah. A bit of splunking. You get that nod back, I think, to the first film where the bat starts to swirl around um, John Blake. Mm -hmm. He walks through the water and is lifted out of the water by the rising platform that is the Dark Knight Rising. I love his little smile as well, the little knowing smile as he arrives in and the bat's... The bats around him. He laughs at the bats coming in because he's like, "Oh no, I think I know what this is. I think I know what my present was." It's cool. Yeah, I love that little scene where where you know he's taking on the mantle. Of the it's a nice little ending, and in some ways, it's a bit of a shame we're not going to see Joseph Gordon-Levitt um, as the Batman. Maybe he would be not bulky enough or no. too small. But even if it was a Nightwing, I always thought he would be a good Nightwing. It's a shame we won't see that, um, but it's a really good ending to an excellent trilogy Absolutely. of Batman films that I think, again, and we've said this before, you put it in the context of where it came from when Batman Begins started, which was ultimately Nipplegate, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Nipplegate with George Clooney and Batman and Batman Robin, and, yeah. and Christopher Nolan essentially brought respect back to the Batman franchise and teased it up so well for um, other directors and, if they so wished, um, made an awful lot of money in the process for Warner Brothers, um, but was also critically and commercially a success. And that, you've got to say, hats off. And they are three excellent films, really dense um, complicated, interesting, little nods to canon, to um, some of Christopher Nolan's own preferences like Blade Runner, uh, Bond, gadgets, all that type of thing. Really good. Christian yeah. Bale is an excellent Batman. Gary Oldman as Jim Gordon, really good. Yeah, I love I love the little nods that he does to the DC universe, uh, the, the wider DC universe, just to kind of give something to the fans, which, you know when other people have tried to do that in the past they try and transfer comic book pages onto t- onto movie screen that's not what Chris Nolan did he made the film he wanted to make um 
in this universe. He made another film he wanted to make in this universe, and he made a third film he wanted to make in this universe. Uh, totally his vision overall. Uh, but there's loads of little great nods that uh, that have been incorporated in there as well, which I love. Um, overall, so overall, rate them. What's your order of preference for the three uh, for the three Batman movies, Dan? My order of preference, if I'm totally honest, are The Dark Knight, followed by Batman Begins, followed by The Dark Knight Rises. I do, in some senses, think that following on from The Dark Knight, The Dark Knight Rises has an awful lot to live up to. Um, I don't think you can ever capture or distill what happened in The Dark Knight twice. Maybe you can, and maybe... Christopher Nolan will do that with another project, but I think within the same project, which was the Batman trilogy, I think it would have been really difficult to emulate what ha- what they had with Heath Ledger in The Joker, um, again in The Dark Knight Rises. I have to say now, Tom Hardy did an excellent job, irrespective of that, as Bane. For a character that has his face covered, he manages to put across an awful amount of um, expression without the use of, essentially, his face, which, as an actor, I suppose is a really challenging thing to do. And he does it in his eyes, he does it in the intonation of his voice and the gesticulation of his arms and hands and and other aspects of his performance. And that's really good. Um, but there, that's that's the three that I would go with: um, the Dark Knight, Batman Begins, the Dark Knight Rises. I would recommend the Dark Knight Rises, as I would recommend all of these films. For me, I think this is a three point five, um, maybe a four at a push, uh, four stars out of five. I just think it possibly suffers from having too much trying to be squeezed into um, a single film. Um, I probably agree with your order, definitely. Um, I think Dark Knight Rises is one I haven't returned to as much. I probably think it, it kind of cuts a bit close to the bone still. Um, a film about the the collapse of, of the economy in, in the States, the collapse of the European economy the because of the fat cats taking them taking their money. Um, there's a tiny bit of wish fulfillment, though, in, in Dark Knight Rises, the, uh, the kangaroo court that the Scarecrow sets up to essentially just punish the uh, the privileged people, it's a little bit of wish fulfillment still. Um, so it's probably something I'll I'll return to in five or six years time, ten years time when things are a little a little better, and I'll probably have a different perspective on it. But at the moment, it's probably still a bit. Uh, it's a great film for that that it is that it is still quite timely and still feels quite um, quite raw. I suppose. Uh, love I love Bane as I said every single time that uh, Selena Kyle walks on screen. Um, she lights it up and Hathaway is amazing she's she it's it's a joy to see a character like that that I had such a, a prejudice coming into the film with and loved every moment that she was on the screen yeah it's a pleasure to watch I think you can also say Catwoman is rehabilitated as well in this film after the debacle that was Catwoman yeah Catwoman yeah Halle Berry's Catwoman yeah fine. um Again, another rehabilitation of a really great character, classic character, one that should be treated in the same vein that Michelle Pfeiffer did in um, Batman 2, uh, Tim Burton's Batman 2. Eartha um, did back in the 60s, yeah, absolutely. You know? Yeah. Um, so, um, would you, obviously, you'll I'd, I'd, recommend. Yeah, without a doubt, no, I think, I think I'm on the same kind of scale at the moment. I'm still, you know, 
3 to 3.5 for, for Dark Knight Rises for me. It's a little bit uh, a film I just ha don't return to that often. I've really enjoyed watching it uh, for, for this review. Um, I probably won't return to it again for a while, but I, I, I'll make a long weekend every time I watch these three films. I generally would watch all three of them uh, relatively close to back to back. It's 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 a great trilogy and a great a great watch. Uh, I hope you guys have enjoyed our coverage of uh, of the Dark Knight trilogy. Yeah, we've again enjoyed talking about it. We really hope you've managed to take something from this, even if it's just to reminisce about some good old films that you went to see and really enjoyed. It's been a pleasure talking about this film, about this trilogy uh, with you and also obviously with Derek. Our next podcast, we will be looking at Gotham Central again. We'll yeah. be returning to the landscape and world of Gotham Central. Yeah, I've read ahead a little bit on uh, on Gotham Central and uh, really, really enjoying it. I hope you guys are going to join us for the next uh, the next portion of Gotham Central. Uh, we're not probably going to talk about as much of the arcs uh, in the next podcast as we have in the past. We were doing kind of three arcs at a time. Uh, it's a lot to get through. It's uh, it's about the size of a of a standard novel. Um, we're, we're thinking we will probably release these in much smaller installments. You could say bite size. Yeah. Um, I think as well. When it comes to Comic-Con at the end of July, we'll also be looking to do a specific podcast or roundup of the San Diego Comic-Con. Uh, and obviously we'll be looking to post stuff up about the DC Universe if there's anything that comes up and crops up, which we are absolutely hoping for, fingers crossed, on Gotham uh, at Comic-Con. Uh, we will be doing that um, at over... Um, the dates in July, which is what the twenty uh, last weekend in July, twenty sixth to twenty twenty eighth of July. Um, so thanks go. very much for joining us. We haven't gotten to feedback this week. Um, want to kind of save it for a kind of a roundup of feedback on uh, on the Dark Knight trilogy. Um, so if you have any feedback on on your thoughts and your memories of of the Dark Knight trilogy, please send them in. You can email us at gothamtvpodcast at gmail dot com. You can get us on our website at gothamtvpodcast.com. And you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, uh, Google+, Tumblr. We're also now putting up uh, photographs for Gotham on our Flickr account. And these are all at the Gotham TV podcast. So search for that. Like us, follow us, tweet us, um, Google+, plus us. <laughs> Um, just share with us share with us um, and hopefully we can re really build a, a good community moving forward into um, the start of the Gotham TV show right. in uh, autumn and I hope we have another week of uh, week of news like this coming up before our next show because uh, there's been loads coming out and loads more to talk about so uh, join us again soon thanks thank you your guilt has been determined this is merely a sentencing hearing now what will it be death or exile. stolen um, a great pearl necklace from uh, Bruce Wayne but her real <laughs> <laughs>
and not only has she just stolen a pearl necklace from the safe <laughs> oops um, she plays the part of, of, of Miranda Tate I'm getting them confused uh, oops so he's come to the same conclusion that, that Bruce has guns are not the way for him he will use intimidation methods going forward um, which I love. I think it's really good. Like waterboarding. <laughs> Maybe waterboarding is a bit far. Knuckle dusters. <laughs> but it's legal. Um, Stress positions. <laughs> well, that's yoga. So, I mean, like. You might use yoga. Oh, yeah. Pilates, whatever it is. <laughs> um, squats. <laughs> what? Oops. Um, yeah, but yeah. basically, what happens then say? is they tie it to the bat pod and. Oh. <laughs> Go bat pod, bat 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 pod. Have we had an egg take if you haven't coughed through it? Oops. 